0: Asia Tech Podcast, voice of the Asian tech ecosystem. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown. Today I'm joined by Vincent Woon, who is the CEO and co-founder of Holistic Software based in Singapore. We're going to talk about building a cloud business in Asia, talking about building a team for a software company as well about how to build a team when you're Singaporean and two of your co-founders are Vietnamese, about being awarded the Echelon Top 100. Also experiences of Y Combinator Startup School. And I like this last bit as well, describing yourself as a CEO and a hustler. Vincent, welcome to the show. Hello, Graham, and hello everyone. Great to have you here. I love that last bit, describing yourself as a hustler. You don't get many software guys who call themselves hustler. What does that mean to you being a hustler?
1: So a hustler is someone who actually gets revenue for the business in a way, in different forms, right? You are there to market yourself. And in the role of sales, it's about building relationships with people, mm-hmm. making them trust you, and actually managing expectations of your customers right. uh, to get a women situation.
0: Are you a, a coder by background? Was that your? Mm-hmm. Are you a technical guy? Do you see yourself as a technical guy? Or are you more sort of on the... The sales
1: side. I'm not a technical guy. I'm more of a architectural guy. Right, right. What did you study at university? I studied business. Right. Okay. All
0: right. Well, we're going to talk a bit more about that. Top of the billing though, we've got to talk about Holistic Software. What exactly is it all about? Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.
1: So Holistics is an online software that powers the data operations for businesses. So what we see is that companies ask questions from their data. You know, it can be in form of charts or numbers. It can be on a regular or a help basis. However, the process of preparing these data and reports is very repetitive and time consuming. And, you know, in recent years, we have a lot of online applications. So businesses start storing their data online and it makes it difficult to have a single view of reporting from them. So what we do, is that we automate the, uh, the entire data pipeline process from source data to insights. So it cuts down the time that data teams spend preparing the report. And you can set up email schedules, you can set up alert threshold. So it's more automatic and you can ask better questions from your data with the time that you save.
0: So would this be taking all the, the KPIs and readings from inside the corporate machine and creating like a dashboard out of that? How does it actually look at the end of the day?
1: So you can add it into the dashboard. You can look at it in a tabular form in terms of numbers and you can manipulate it to look at it by daily, weekly, monthly, or quarterly views. Mm. And all that is done just with a few clicks on the mouse um, as compared to the previous scenario where you have to have someone that manually visualize the data on Excel, manually refresh it. Um, what we built for is an online interface for your database. Mm. So you can get all those metrics that you'll need or you can even ask ad hoc questions from your data.
0: What's the uh, problem that, that they're solving then? What What is missing from the current market in terms of your solution that you thought, well, we need to start something, we need to solve this problem?
1: So our software was built when my CTO, Hui was working as a data engineer and he felt frustrated with the market tools. Um, number one, it is catered to consume data, meaning it, get, it gives you pretty dashboard, yeah. but it does not help the team that actually prepares the data. So he set up the entire data infrastructure pipeline, and what we realized is that a lot of tech companies do not have this luxury um, to build such an internal data platform. It takes a lot of work, engineering work, to integrate this data, to actually to visualize this data. Mm. And at the same time, our main customer segments are tech companies. They are starving of resources. They don't have enough engineers to um, you know to dedicate to an internal data platform. At the same time, they also have a limited budget to go for the, uh, you know, the established market solutions. And that's where we come in. Uh, mm. We automate the mundane so they can focus on their core business.
0: Right. I don't understand that area of sort of the internal IT setups well enough to understand how big that problem is. It seems pretty straightforward. I would have thought these large IT companies would be the best people to solve that problem themselves, right, internally.
1: The thing about the tech people in the IT company is that they have a core product and reporting normally takes a seat for some of them right. and they need to present these reports. When you raise a new round of funding, your investors will require you to give them regular report. How, is, how are you doing on your KPIs? Right? That's, a, that's a simple thing. Um, you can build that. The problem comes when you want to know why did my sales drop? What happened? Hmm. They need to get access to the raw data. And people are just exporting into data into spreadsheets, pumping into them, visualizing it, and doing the same thing over and over again. And this was what surprised me when I talked to our customers is that even as tech companies, they do not have the, you know, they, they, are, they don't find that they are getting enough value of their data. Hmm. They know that they hold a lot of data, but these data are in so many different places. There's so much friction to get to them. And they just at the same time they do not want to take away time from their engineers uh, to start building this and you know you have data teams data scientists who are highly paid that comes in and they do a lot of manual data plumbing work instead of focusing on asking good insightful questions from the data to make recommendations that can grow the business
0: right right. there's a lot of intermediaries isn't there between the person who needs to make the decision and actually that data itself isn't it like you put putting a data scientist in there you, you kind of create a step in the process you don't really need right i mean i I sort of think about myself i mean obviously my company is not sort of you know of the size of the, the clients that you deal with but i think about the the metrics i regularly use or try to use i mean even going to something like google analytics right you know which is pretty fundamental for any company online And, you know, for your marketing, but just how frustratingly difficult that is for a company like Google, which has really aced search. You know, that Google single search field is so simple. Yet when you try and go into the analytics side of things, it's just so frustrating. I just want it to do this. I just want it to tell me this. But I have to go through many, many, many steps. And I wonder, is that sort of inherent in software, in these you know, do we try and make things too difficult and not sort of step
1: outside and think about how people actually use it? Because I thought Google would have got that right. So Google focuses on web analytics and it tries to do a lot of things within a single tool. Um, but when you look at the main problem that people have, is actually, I mean, for Google Analytics, if you want to get basic web traffic data, basic conversion data, it works great. But it doesn't help you understand the root cause. Yeah. Uh, you know, on why certain things drop because it doesn't give you the the raw data. Behind it, it gives you the aggregate. So even to set up something like a conversion funnel, um, is extremely difficult. Yeah. And that's 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 one of the things we see. And you know, I used to work. You know, back back when I was working in my previous role, I used to sell bi um, data software that's worth millions of dollars. And one of them was to one of the largest real estate companies in Singapore. They spend a lot of money. And a lot of times it's about defining the data sets that is important and also about navigating it for the business users. So you're trying to do two things. Number one, you're making it easy for non-technical users to consume Mm. the data. And the second thing, which is more problematic, which is not many companies focus on improving the experience for data teams, data analysts, and data scientists.
0: Okay, well, we're gonna dive into your background in a minute. Before we get there, that whole thing about making it simple That's actually quite hard, isn't it? It, It's actually harder to make software simpler than it is to make it more and more complex, like to add things to it. How are you sort of mindful of that, you know, in building your solutions? How do you constantly bring it back to that simplicity? Because it's hard discipline, isn't it? Do you have sort of processes for that? Do you have sort of philosophy for that?
1: So this is something I learned from my engineers that in the Unix way, I mean, it's kind of like an operating system um, mm. for, for for the programmers. And you make sure that each function and each capability does one thing really well. So if you look at one of the process we do very well, it's in data plumbing, meaning to say when you move data from one place to the other, how do you actually also um, format it? How do you change it? Uh, or what they call it, transform it. And the traditional process on how that is done involves like three, three components all bundled together in a single script. And what we did was that, let's look about these three components. What are the, what are the components? First of all, you need to move the data. Mm. So let's take, let's split the whole process. The first step is to move your data. The second step is actually to automate the process that you want to move the data, right? You, so you move that data in. And the third step is actually, when do you actually want to transform the data? How do you transform it? So by taking something that's complex, uh, writtenly, and I mean that's that's being very complex, you break it down into the 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 first principles, right? Based on first principle, what are the components that's important? So we take, for example, the automation component. We make it as simple for you to move data around as it is to schedule a calendar invite, a recurring calendar invite. Mm. So. You know, we, we, we simplify the interface. When you want to move data across, you do not want to complicate it with how do you want to change the format on how the data looks like at the end. You just say, I want to move the data. I want to change maybe the column name, and you just move it. And you can do a mix and match of them to make sure that your data appears in the way you want. But if you try to do everything in one in one place, in one big script, that becomes a problem. And I wanted to add that also that right now the additional complexity is that data is now stored in different places. You have data that's stored on Google Analytics, you have data that's stored in Facebook advertisements, Mm. you have data that's stored in your database, and you know your accounting software. How do you get them into the central location? So from different, so what we practice is uh, any source to any destination, um, kind of a data movement.
0: Mm. Uh, Is that possible to reach in and get data out of Facebook advertising campaigns and Google Analytics and bring it all together? Yes. The technology's there. Okay. Because I wonder, you know, it's like a. I I sometimes think running a business is like driving a car. You know, you want, I know this is probably going to date itself now that cars drive themselves, but let's just assume that human beings drive cars now. You have a dashboard, don't you? And you want to be able to know looking at the dashboard, exactly the the status of the car right you you don't want to have to sort of lift up the hood and you know get your own thermometer out and test the 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 engine temperature right you want it there right in front of you because it's absolutely impossible to do that in a working situation isn't it so to sort of bring it all together in a dashboard and i've sort of worked i mean i spent 15 years in telecoms and you know they, they were just you know masses of internal KPIs. I mean, they just had thousands and thousands of KPIs, just so complicated, right? And I think that was the challenge is that a lot of the very talented people in these companies were just, didn't know what the focus was because, you know, it goes back to that old measure, doesn't it? Is that, you know, whatever you measure gets done in the organization. So if you tell people to focus on web traffic, you know, if you measure it, that's what they're going to do, right? Right. So I think that was the sort of, you know, half the challenge is that a lot of these large organizations are just so, you know, overloaded with data. You know, if you just look at, for example, you know, they buy reports all the time and they right. just have stacks and stacks of reports. There's, there's nobody actually sort of trying to pull all this together and say, this is what it means. So I think there's a big challenge there, which is, you know, that the IT companies themselves are organized in such a way that they're just awash with data. That must be kind of frustrating for you know talented people in these situations.
1: That was a very interesting uh, story you shared. Um, one thing we learned is that, especially in the startup world, is that it's very important to focus on a few key metrics that matters. Mm. And when you have too many metrics, it ends up, op- you end up optimizing for everything and nothing actually gets done. So it was at a point in time where in my previous role, the sales manager was optimizing for pipeline generation at the same time, they were also optimizing for closure, uh, you know, on the same on the same sales rep, and you know, there's always this balance, you know, and then they wanted to have good customer satisfaction, and you just find it very difficult for on the working level for people to know, like, so what am I supposed to do, mm. right? So there's uh, there's this there's this creative tension uh, between the you know how opposing metrics put you into balance. But there's also a certain case that they may actually make you feel paralyzed mm. uh, in terms of working on that. So if you look then, even for us, you know we have a lot of uh, metrics that we can measure, but we measure mainly on two key metrics. Number one, of the how many people actually came to our website and of the people that came to our website, how many of them actually sign up? And how do we actually increase these two ends of the funders? Uh, retention has not been a problem for us. So far, so we had, uh, you know, our customers are reasonably satisfied with what we do. So we focus on the top two and just say, what does it take for us to grow the business yeah, in, you know. in these two angles? Absolutely.
0: Is that, I mean, I've always wondered that it is, is it a realistic situation or just a pipe dream to have a scenario where you just have like one metric which you focus on in a day to day? That's the button that you need to push to grow the business. Can it ever get to that stage or is that sort of you know, too hypothetical actually you need like you know a whole bunch of metrics because I, I would love that i mean i love it just like just focus on x every day increase x right uh, yeah does that ever happen could you get it to that kind of sort of minimalist sheer focused you know situation where it, that x could be for example just focus on conversion rates if you focus on conversion rates, your business is going to grow. That's an example, right? It could be focus on the number of meetings you have or the number of calls you make, right? That sort of, you know, the alpha metric, if you like, that controls everything. Is is that real or is that sort of just wishful thinking?
1: I think it serves as a compass, but it doesn't serve. So you you actually set it more like in a compass uh, perspective. That means mm. you set a direction to say like, if, for example, my focus is on a particular market segment, for example, say tech companies, uh, what data structure do they work with and where do they normally hang out with? Hmm. So when when we have our team, you know, when you have, um, you know, you you, you basically run the operations and it's inevitably that at some point in time, you have to go back to operation and just say, what is causing friction in in helping you achieve that metric? And when you work on a task that uh, address those friction, it's not immediately apparent that you will have a, you know, a very direct impact on the metric you want to focus on. Mm, mm, mm. So the way we see it is pretty much interconnected. I mean, you can say that it's hypothetical, but I would say that it's more to say, don't rely on it as a mantra, but I just say that it's a direction that we are going. Right. right. So for us, it's just about two things. The first is the quality of the people that comes in, and the second is the quality of the people that try our software and how happy they are
0: right and and do you measure that through are those the metrics you just mentioned before or do you have specific metrics for that I'm talking about within holistic software itself
1: so we have for example the, the website visits and mm. from the website visits we have how many of them eventually sign up for the trial right. and then the question is how many people can you get onto the website and how how do you actually how do you actually raise that right? We uh, want to make we want to increase that. So you either increase the number of uh, traffic that comes in, or you increase the effectiveness of the people who sign up for the trial. Mm.
0: Right? So so on on, the, on a daily basis, do you do? You, how does that sort of fit into your daily routine? You know, like when you walk in the office in the morning you check your metrics the first thing how does that sort of influence how the day sort of pans out or is it sort of you know you check your metrics once a week at the meeting just curious to know how much of a priority do they have in your sort of daily
1: planning so we actually set up a weekly report that actually gets emailed to us on a weekly basis to say this is your conversion metrics for the past week Mm. and this is how it's done and you know basically so so there are other sub-metrics that goes along in it. But as an entire company, we are focused on the top two uh, metrics.
0: Right, right. So that would be, you know, when you have your internal discussions, that would be the basis of the discussions, the science behind them, if you like, rather than just, you know, hypothesizing about what may be the case, right? You actually say, look, it's gone up 5%, down 7%,
1: you know, that's how it is. It drives up a decision as to which projects to, to, to focus on. So for example, we will have a project that surveys the data analysts and we will publish this um, analyst survey, or we will, actually, you know, we will conduct a webinar and we share it around to the world to say like, hey, you know, we are getting um, data teams from different backgrounds to share their technical challenges in working with data, mm-hmm. right? And that helps to bring more visibility and traffic uh, to the community, I mean, to, um, in terms of to the company. At the same time, we have somebody who actually looks at our product full time observe the user interactions and learn how can we actually, where do they get stuck? Where do they get confused? And how can we actually enhance that interface um, to make it easier for them? So that is with the metric of optimizing for the, you know, the the, the eventual, people who tried for the software and will eventually bought it. And when your sales team have a call with them, you will ask them like, hey, uh, you know, what's wrong? Like, uh, can you tell us the issues? So all this feedback into the mechanism and we just look at it, once a you know once a quarter or maybe like once every month you know depending on the urgency of things, and we say hey, uh, so these are the things that's blocking us from growing. So what are we going to do about it? And the challenge then is that it takes a lot of, for some of these requests. It's not a one-off effort, but it takes a lot of time and resources to put that um, you know to to channel behind. So we have to be very clear. What is it that we want to achieve? And which is a favorite sentence when we, when, we, when we talk about before we start doing any projects? What's the problem statement? Yeah. And which neither does it move? That's what every CEO needs to know, isn't it?
0: I think the challenge is, is that, I speak only from my experience, right? That right. Um, often you have access to data, and I go back to Google Analytics as an example. You have access to data, and when you, obviously you have a, a metric which you want to improve. Let's just say, for example, it's website traffic. I want to improve website traffic fifteen percent. Whatever it is, I find, and it's purely down to the tools that I use. Is that the, when that data comes back, there's too many variables as to why that increases. And you know, as much as I'd like to say, look, this went up fifteen percent because we did a webinar. You know, when mm-hmm. I look at it, when you sort of unpack Google Analytics as an example, there's a big chunk of it which is just unknown. Like, for example, when you look at sources, you know, the source of the traffic, it's like 70% just unknown, right? You know, like direct traffic, which could be anything. And I find that that sort of existence of these unknowns, these these variables makes it very hard to, like you say, go back to the lever, you know, what is actually making it go up and down? What's going wrong
1: in that situation? How is Why is that happening? What am I doing wrong there? You can look at it from both the technical basis and also the business basis. So when so for what we do, we actually focus a lot on the promotion code and the referral code. So when someone actually signs up for something, we actually track that. The problem with using Google Analytics is that they don't really give you the specific data, hmm. like you know if a specific user comes over to you, um, you know which user comes from where. That data is not that. Easily located, exactly. and I'm not even sure it can be found, right? That's 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 number one. When I when I mention about the the, I mean I'm not that. If you if you look at what we um, are working on, you can be working on different things, and we just say that this is a project, and you find that this is going to move. Um, for example, like you you ask for like uh, you know you just got featured onto the press and just say like hey you know, the, 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 this podcast is being featured and, you know, by the by the press or, you know, whoever that actually, or uh, well maybe they're just by being featured by by mm-hmm. different press around the world. And you notice that that traffic is immediately apparent. But knowing that itself, it, it tells you a few things, right? Like number one, do you find that the audience is specific? So is that a way that you capture the data at a point when the audience uh, comes in? And that is the difference between having something of your own that can capture some data points and you relate it. So I have this amount of visits and mm. this number of people will just say, hey, you know, uh, Graham, I want to join your podcast and I was referred by this person. So having the users fill up their form and tell you about that, sometimes it's a lot more helpful and easier than any technical consideration. Mm. You just store them into the central repository.
0: I mean, how do you do that? I mean, I want to go into your background in a minute, but I've got so many questions to ask you. How do you do that? Because it's easy, for example, for any company to go to Facebook or even Google and and spend $5 to get a customer that creates $10, as an example. I mean, that's sort of very basic marketing, isn't it? And, you know, if you can crack that model, you know, you're doing well because all you need to do is just spend more money because you'll create more money, right? As long as you're getting more money in than what you're spending to get those customers and that's very easy to track but like for example with the podcast there's so many of these uh fuzzy activities that companies do like podcasts you know you could have done a conference presentation somebody saw that presentation and three months later they come back to the web- website and sign up for a webinar and then two months later they buy something and you know that may sound like an extreme but that's quite common isn't it there's a lot of small
1: nudges along the way which i wonder how do you track them how, how do you sort of make sense of all that we have to incentivize the users um, to share those information so if someone heard the podcast for example like in some of the previous podcasts they actually get a promotional code mm. and when they actually sign up for the trial they will say that this is they get a certain benefit because you know they, they they put a promotional code so it helps us because we can locate where they are from and it helps them because they get some benefit uh, you know, whether it, I mean for your case, it could be a case of like personal branding publicity or you know just to extend the whole um, network of influence uh, mm. for them. So I'm not that sure how that goes, but at least for us, you know if you actually sign up for our trial platform and you give a referral code, you have different incentives that comes along your way and those can be specific. And when you capture them, so think about them like, you know, additional column on your spreadsheet, this user that signs up and, you know, come from, coming from this place. So that's how we actually make it a little bit more organized. And instead of figuring out how to get those data anonymously, we try to incentivize users. Where do you, come, where do you right, learn right. about us from? That makes complete sense. All right, then. let's do this then. I've got you on the spot. I've
0: ambushed you in a way. People listening to this podcast can go and trial your platform, right? So do you, I mean, in this situation, are you ready with a a promotional code? I mean, if you are, drop it now. I mean, let's share with people because I'm sure people want to go and check it out. Before we talk a little bit about your background, do
1: you have something like that to hand? Right. So you can put a a promo code called ATP2018. 2018. 2018. Yeah. Let me just text it to you.
0: All right. It's fine. We'll put it in the show notes. Mm Mm-hmm all right okay that wasn't set up by the way everybody as much as it probably sounds like it it wasn't but i think it's a good way of actually working i mean vincent practices what he preaches let's sort of rewind the clock a little bit now talk a little bit about your background and how you got here because you've got an interesting setup with your team haven't you you've got i mean you're singaporean and your two co-founders are from vietnam how do you guys meet how did that all happen
1: so I knew Hui back in school, I was we were taking a course in uh, college. I was in my final year, he was in his first year. So it was the first Facebook class in Singapore that was conducted by um, NUS. Mm. And I encouraged him to go for an overseas program that was by NUS Enterprise. So, you know, he went to Stockholm for the year and that's how I get to know him. I mean, uh, you know, that that was a result of our interactions. I mean, we work on projects together. And he also went for, you know, an overseas opportunity that this college has given us. And when we were working on this project, we also introduced his colleague, who is Tang, who is Tang, uh, to us. Him, you know, Tang came, comes from the background of data integration consultants, uh, working on the big data projects and data science. So the three of us comes in together and explore the market opportunity. Right.
0: So in this setup, those two guys are the technical brains of the company. Yes. Right. Very much. It's a Vietnamese thing as well. I mean, for those that don't know, there is a very big market of very high level developers in Vietnam, isn't there? There's a lot of outsourced business going there for people. I mean, I think originally databases and games were very popular in Vietnam, isn't it? What is it that the Vietnamese seem to do
1: that produces all these very sort of high level software engineers? I. Personally, find is their strong math background. Like they are very quick in thinking and there's a certain level of uh, skill sets that's being built because of the outsourcing market. So you have a lot of talented Vietnamese engineer who goes into the profession mm. and they get uninspired by the work that they do, uh, you know, working for outsourcing companies. And what what's really exciting is that we have two very talented Vietnamese engineers who come together from different backgrounds, um, showing different perspective of engineering. And the nature of our business um, actually exposed us to really, really good engineers. Um, I think there's one, like yeah, their math background and their ability to work really hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a very strong work ethic and culture. Um, you know, they, they put in like the, the, the top process that it goes into making sure that their things work um, is is actually pretty detailed. Well,
0: I mean, you have Vietnam. Vietnam now is the, the fastest growing country in the world, I think, you know, it's sort of 8%, 7 point whatever percent GDP. It's sort of testament to that fact, isn't it? So when it, when it came to actually starting holistic software, who pitched who the idea? Was it you that came up with the idea or your partner?
1: Uh, Hui. Actually, right. so Hui actually built the software in his uh, previous company as a data engineer because yeah. he was frustrated with just how the tools work, and he was asking me like, "Hey, Vincent, over lunch, like, hey, I built this tool. Do you think it's interesting to bring this to market?" Um, so I looked at it. I asked him like, "Can you show me a demo?" I looked at it. I was a bit shocked and I was pretty skeptical about it. Mm. Uh, you know, but that's that's that was at the beginning. Um. We tested it out before we actually, uh, you know, for a pretty long time before we actually started full time. So, we was the one who conceptualized the idea.
0: Right. Were you at IBM at this time? Because you did, what was it, about five years at IBM, didn't you?
1: Yes. So, I actually moved on from uh, IBM. I was actually at a software company back then dealing with automation, um, batch automation, and also application automation, which was uh, in hindsight, Like, it provides a very strong base, uh, you know, towards how we shape the directions of holistics like data and automation and operations. Um, If you look at what we do, we automate a lot of the data operations. And yeah, I mean, I was was developing a business for the French software companies. So they were like two years in Singapore with two um, anchor customers. So I've joined them as their first sales member. And we've grew the company from two customers to 15 customers. Mm. And we were even listed in the government-approved uh, uh, vendor list um, in terms of providing them the automation software.
0: Okay, so you were working for this French software company. You were working in sales. You were an employee, effectively, right? Of right. That company. So what, what was the thought process for you when Hui pitched you this idea? At first, you were skeptical, but at some point, it must have changed in your mind and not just the fact that you thought this was a good idea, but you thought it was good enough to leave your job, leave the comfort of the salaried world and go and start your own business. What was that all about? How did that happen?
1: To be honest, it's a bit backwards. Um, it started from a desire to work with Hui. I think both of us, right. um, you know, so I, for seven years, right? Like, I um, in since I've graduated, like it's always about finding a good technical co-founder to work with. Hmm. So it was more like the opportunity to work with two very brilliant engineers uh, that first enticed me and say like, hey, the space is tough, the product looks weird, but you know if I can work with two really good engineers, what can we develop? Right, that was interesting. So, so that was the top process that sparked it. But the actual trigger, was actually when we were having our day-to-day conversations. Um, so we were talking to corporates, um, you know we're meeting them over coffee. We also showed them to tech companies. And you know we, we, we actually secured our first customer which was Grab. And at that point in time Grab was not as big as it was right now. They were growing really fast. Mm. And that was a point where we just say hey, you know we have some data points that companies really do have a data problem. And you know we were able to secure that order with Grab. And You know, there's basically no excuses because they're going to roll it out to the entire company. So right now they have like more than 1,000 users um, across eight countries that's using Holistics.
0: Was that at a point where you all jumped in full time into this business? Or was it sort of some of you were still sort of, you know, onboarding slowly? Or was it all sort of like, okay, now Holistics is full time for all of us?
1: That's a good question. It was a very slow onboarding. So we spent our nights and the weekends right. uh, working on the Holistics for over a year. So we were looking at the market positioning. We were contemplating uh, what segments of um, the product was solve, what solution we should focus on. And we just keep talking to people. So that background work was done for one whole year. Um, you know. And during that time, it was uh, it was also interesting because we also tested each other. Like, mm. you know, do you have any reasons to leave the startup? For example, so I think one of the things I kept encouraging, like the three of us, to say, if you have any slightest uh, thought about, you know, maybe not to join the startup, you know, do do let the team know early mm. because once you get started, we can't stop.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's very interesting the way you describe it because. The way I see it, Vincent, is that the way you started and built Holistics and the way you've grown it since is very much the possibly one of the, the the lower risk ways of doing it and most sensible for a lot of listeners as well. Because I think we have an image in our head that it kind of goes like this, is that you go to Stanford University, you do computer science or computer engineering, you graduate, go straight into an accelerator, you know, age 20 years old, you know, with no experience of the world, you start a startup, you get a lot of funding, and you just go at it, right? Whereas your way of doing it is you already had, I mean, you had five years at IBM Mm -hmm. under your belt before you started. And obviously your co-founders were experienced as well. Plus you worked for a number of other companies as well. You know, you you, you weren't just a, a young graduate who had no world experience. And I think that part as well is that you were onboarding at nights and you you were putting in the hours and it took a year. You were thoroughly testing this thing as well. I think it's important that people know that that's reality for a lot of startups, because I sometimes find that startup founders are uh, in a way scared because they're too old or they think they're too old. You know, they're not sort of a 20 year old guy in a pair of shorts or they feel that they have to jump in. Like, you know they have to jump in the deep end quit their job and start the startup right was that is that sort of a the way that you chose to do everything or you know because I'm curious why you, you did it that way because it
1: seems the better way of doing things was it always part of the plan for me personally yes I'm a person who thinks about the worst possible consequences and whether I can accept it before I actually move into a decision, hmm. so I take every decision I make. So I'm, I, I think like even if you look at how the startup world they kind of glamorize the use of the word pivot, it was not a very sexy term for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a certain level of responsibility we have towards ourselves, and also um, towards our family. When especially when you're talking about running a startup, it's not uh, something that you want to do you know, in just uh, one or two years, and you just, you know, move on from there. Mm. This literally impacts the entire family. And I, being myself, I didn't even realize that until, you know. So I, I think the other interesting thing is that Holistics was actually, you know, we started full time on Holistics and my son's first year of birthday. So wow. we actually started doing the background research when he was born. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, Good you know, timing. Fatherhood and, uh, you know, research at the same time. And, you know, I actually joined, uh, you know, we actually started full-time the, the, the moment he turns one year, so.
0: Right. So you yeah. were you, you had a full-time job, you, you and your wife just had a, a new baby, and you were starting a startup sort of on the side, at least sort of doing the, the research work for it, all at the same time.
1: Yes. There you go.
0: I think just let that sink in a bit for everybody. I mean that just must have been a crazy time for you say you're putting in the the evenings. Well I'm sure you weren't getting much sleep as well, looking after yes. your son. So I mean, do you remember was it just a blur back then? Do you remember any of that?
1: It was it was not easy, I would say. And I tried to make full use of the time uh that I have um, I think one thing that helps is the flexibility that, uh, you know, being in a startup gives me in terms of my time. Mm. But that also means that, um, you know, like every every waking hour is spent either on my son or on holistics. Um, you know, so holistics that my second kid in a way. Mm.
0: Mm. Absolutely. How did you, uh, th- this is a question that I really want to ask you, Vincent, because it's a question that often people don't think about, but it's probably the most important question for any startup founder. It's quite personal as well. Mm-hmm. Is that um, when you start a business? Is if you're married, if you have a family, like you say, having that family on board is absolutely probably the most important thing that you need. You know, and it, there's so many reasons why that's the case. You know, because it's never going to be easy, and you know, you, you don't want somebody who's saying no, 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 don't quit the job you know, we need to have the salary, we've got to pay the mortgage and so on. You've got to have somebody that believes in you. And it's the same with me. When I started my business, my wife was like, you know, go for it. And that's all I needed to hear. You know, I never wanted to start a business and then sort of turn around and she says, I told you so. Because then right. it, for me, I'd be, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to deal with that because I will have failure in any business that I start. How did you, for one of the better word, pitch that to your wife that, you know, you were going to start this business and
1: go full-time into it what was the what was that conversation like so i was lucky to have an understanding wife um so we've been together um you know since uh, we were 16 wow and during that i mean like i mean she was 17 i was 18 sorry uh, so we've been a long time together and my aspirations to run a. she always knew i have the aspirations to start my own startup right um, it was just a matter of not finding the right opportunity. So I could have forced myself to go into the few opportunities, uh, but I didn't do so because I was pretty skeptical. Um, so when the time comes for it, it was actually pretty emotional because, you know, I was having this chat with her and, mm-hmm. you know, I was just asking her like, you know, what happens if this thing doesn't work out? Um, but this thing doesn't come twice. So, and she says like, you know, if this is what you believe in, go for it, mm-hmm. right? And I think it was really helpful that because, you know, I've kind of um, planned for it in a way. I was really focused on three things uh, during the course of my career. Um, The first is actually to build a financial safety net. So, you know, I may have made my numbers, I may have went to the 100% club, um, you know, or hit my quotas, but instead of, uh, so, but basically I saved them for the time that I eventually need them. Mm. So that was very important for me. And the second thing was that I always work on the basis, which is when I'm working on something in my seven years, I'm thinking about how would this skill be applied if I was to run my own business? So I think of every job that I work on as if it was my own business. How would that go? And that actually made me go beyond a lot of my uh, a scope of a normal sales manager, like I was joining customer service calls, um, mm. you know all the way handling it, you know, through the internal bureaucracy to get down to resolution. I will go into the legal terms and conditions negotiations because, you know, generally you do not want lawyers from the customers to talk to your company lawyers as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So you try to understand the meaning behind the terms and what they do. So that actually, you know, so those different parts of the business operations and also learning from very best in class salespersons um, that I work with uh, throughout my career, all the way from my bosses, uh, my colleagues i observe their sales styles and learn about which style is suitable for me so building that core skill sets building the financial safety net was basically what enabled um, me to be able to pursue uh, this with more confidence at least with the support of my wife
0: well i mean it's fascinating listening to you now i mean it's such a good case study and a, a an example for people to follow isn't it that you all the, the salary jobs you took and all that sort of those extra hours and extra yardage that you put in, you were thinking, yeah, okay, I'm I'm building for something in the future. I, I don't know what it is right now, but it's going to be, you know, my thing, my, my business, my startup, my dream that I'm going to build, right? So going out and getting all that sort of experience with customer sales calls and, you know, all that sort of, you know... The stuff which is so easy to avoid in a business, isn't it? Because you know you just kind of focus on your 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 little world I mm. mean how valuable that is now. I mean good for you and I think that anybody who's a startup founder, especially in software listening or a future startup founder, you know that's great advice from them It's, it's like you know if you're in a an it company, you know volunteer yourself to be part of these activities, right? Because you'll learn so much. I mean, what did you learn in that experience? What sort of things do you take to your your hustle that you, you do on a day-to-day with Holistics when you, you know, those sales calls or those sales meetings or the customer feedback that you had in companies like IBM? Can you sort of pick out examples of what actually, you know, made an impression upon you?
1: The greatest learning I learned throughout my career is to identify sincere, serious customers and customers who are just, um, you know, um, being nice to you, but actually not moving uh, ahead. And once you know that as a a salesperson, it saves you a lot of time Um, and a lot of uh, unexpected, uh, you know, how would I say, disappointments, right? That's the first thing. The second thing as a salesperson is that you are always very skeptical until the money reach your bank. Yes.
0: Yeah, that's so true. I was a sales guy for, well, um, I don't know, maybe a a (laughs) number of years. I worked in financial services. Um, My type of sales is maybe a little bit less complex than yours. Mine was just cold calling. Right. This is back in the 90s, right? Yes. One of those sort of environments where you had to make 100 calls a day. Right. And a lot of people just absolutely hated it. Right. But, you know, I was always thinking, look, you know, this may be a really tough job because you're picking up the phone, you're pitching people who don't know you, don't want to talk to you. Um, But I was always thinking, you know, this is going to help me run my own business because, you know, it's going to give me confidence in talking to people, right? And that whole thing about, I mean, those two points that you raised, I mean, how important that is about real customers. Who who are the real customers that you should be working with? And also the, the money hitting the bank. That's the tough part as well because... Especially when sort of companies work with pipelines as well. You know, they have my my pipeline. How much is in your pipeline? I've got like 50,000 in my pipeline, right? But how many of that actually materializes in the bank, right? I mean, it's always tough. The first part about
1: real customers, what's your advice on that? People have a tendency to not move. Um, You know, so it could be something that can improve. Hello. It could be something that improves the quality. Mm Mm-hmm of their, you know, their company or their business, but they just think that if I put in this amount of work to justify for this vendor, is it, you know, should I risk my own personal branding? What happens if this project fails? Wouldn't it be easier if I choose to let it remain status quo? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you have to be able to ask questions that detect it and let you sense it. Um, There are customers who are very nice to you on the outside. But they're actually being very cruel to you um, if they are not upfront with you. Right. And people like people don't like saying no, do they? That's also a problem, isn't it? And that um, people don't like saying no. So you always have to think about what is it that the customer has not said to you. Right. It's you know it's not just about being focused on what he said, but also about what he has not said. And some people may take it the wrong way and just say, oh, you know, this customer is not there. And you know, if you're not careful, you'll go into a very um, you know. Complaining or whining attitudes towards a customer, mm. but at the same time, that's also the fall on the salesperson, because have you actually created um a compelling reason for the customer to move? Mm. One of my previous sales leader also told me this question: If I tell you that behind that locked door is a million dollars, right, and mm. you know all you just need to do is to open that door with this key, right? How many of people will say that they have no time to do that? Yeah. <laughs> So,
0: all right. I just want to unpack that a little bit because it's it's really really good advice. I mean, a lot of people who I mean everybody who listens to this podcast, some way sells. I and mean, I don't care if you don't have sales in your title. You know, everybody lives and dies by selling, don't they? And they people sell in different ways. Some people, like me in my old days, sell by getting on the phone. Some people sell by webinars, but it's all selling, isn't it? We all live by selling. So that whole part, of that whole part about the best time for the customer not to act the best time for the customer to do something is never right i mean how do you actually for all those people listening how would you advise people to take that on board so i mean i for example i could be selling software to uh you know let's say restaurant owners in singapore and i'm selling some kind of let's say you know, some kind of point of sale software for them to improve their businesses, and I'm going around all these restaurants in Singapore selling that to them. How do I take that advice on board?
1: I would say the I would put it the other way around. If a restaurant is meeting you, and for example, most likely you market a problem. So you can put it in two ways, right? The first is that, um, is that a reason you want to meet me, right, which is a bit awkward at times to ask, but actually the more fundamental question that I would say is, what have you explored in the past to solve this problem? Right. Like why wasn't this done like three months ago or even three years ago? And you basically know what is the showstopper that's stopping them from achieving what they really want to do. And that is actually the core problem. A lot of time it's not just about the software, it's also about yeah. getting people comfortable with the with you know, working with your software on a you know day in and day out basis. That's number one. And the second thing is about mitigating risk. That means to say that if I were to propose, um if you look at how the BI market is a few hundred or a few thousand dollars monthly subscription and the project ends up being a failure, then I'm going to look really bad mm. um in front of my boss. How do you actually mitigate the risk uh, for them? Right. So once you underline, once you know their fear of moving, then you next look to know, like, what does it take for you to help them?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting listening to you, Vincent, you're talking about words like fear as well. But that really, to me, is the sign of a master sales guy. Sales guy, if I can use those terms. But you know, that, you really understand what motivates people. Because I think the problem that a lot of startup founders have is that they start with their solution and talk about all the kind of opportunities that it will present to the customer, right? You know, that, oh, look at this magical piece of software. It's going to win you all these customers. Well, that's fine. But what actually is stopping them from, like you say, opening that door with a million dollars behind it, right? Mm-hmm. There's all those other aspects, which maybe you haven't talked about yet, which is the fear. And like you said, you say, you know, what stopped you doing this in the past? What what have you done in the last three years about this? It's kind of an indirect question, isn't it? And you get people to talk about things which maybe they'll talk around to what the real issue is. And you say, oh, you know, I want to do this, but, you know, my boss, X, Y, Z, right? Or, you know, all those kind of things that come out. But that's what a real salesman should do. You should be able to get all that stuff out so you understand really what is the stopping point here. Hmm yeah, yeah. Well, this is brilliant this is fantastic loving it i think this is really good advice for startup founders and, and well we've got you know we've come nearly to the hour i mean wow that time has <laughs> flown by fantastic hey listen yes. vincent you know there's so much more i wanted to talk to you about we didn't talk about why combinated startup score we didn't talk about echelon top 100 etc cetera, et cetera. Um, but i think you've done such a great job of describing you know what you're about and um, ultimately that's I guess as any salesperson knows is that's the first thing people buy isn't it is the person like you said when you you started Holistics it was was the team that you bought into wasn't it not the product the the product is fantastic but you know the team was the most important thing for you Mm -hmm. so thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your advice it really was inspirational thank
1: you thank you Graham uh, for inviting me to this podcast and it was really nice uh, talking to you and also um, you know, the, the the questions you asked was really interesting.
0: Yeah, no, it's a sales guy to sales guy conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I love it because you know when somebody puts hustler in their title, I mean hustle's kind of an overused word these days, I think. And and it doesn't the true hustlers are the ones who have sales experience. And I think every startup founder should get some kind of sales experience somehow. Like you said, you know, volunteer yourself to be part of customer calls if you can get that opportunity. Or you know, if you're a young guy or girl just graduating, get a retail job, right? You know, work in a store, right? Just so you get six months experience talking to customers, walk through the, the door every day, right? I mean, that's fantastic experience for a startup founder long-term, right? I think it's so underrated, right? We we need to kind of remind people that that's, this is the lifeblood of any startup. So Vincent Woon, everybody, CEO and co-founder of Holistic Software. And before you go, let's do that Promo code again, just in case people forgot so they can go and try it out.
1: Right. So the promo code is ATP2018. Ben, yes. So
0: thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story and your world advice, world wisdom with us. And uh, where can people find out more about you and Holistics?
1: Thank you so much, Graham, for, for the opportunity to be in this podcast. And yes, let's keep in touch.
0: Definitely. Before you go, a URL, what's the best place to reach out to you?
1: Uh, holistics. URL holistics or connect with me on LinkedIn actually. Excellent. we we'll put all the details in the show notes. As yes. it says,
0: Vincent Woon, everybody, master sales closer extraordinaire. But that was great advice and I really enjoyed that and advice that I'll take on board as well. So, Vincent, please come back on the show. We'd love to have <laughs> you back in, in the future and share your wisdom with us and how holistics is growing. Sure, we'll do. Thanks so much,
1: Graham. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at ATP.show.